It's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. Everybody is there, even Carrie White, the girl no one likes. We're all sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie! And everyone makes fun of her. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. Help the silly woman see the sin of her days and ways. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. The girl with the strange power. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. But tonight, no one will laugh at Carrie. If you don't have a date for the prom next Friday, would you like to go with me? She's with the best-looking boy in the senior class. He's trying to trick me again. She'll be voted queen of the prom. You know, I can make sure that you don't hurt Carrie White anymore. For Carrie, it will be a dream come true. For everyone else, it will be a nightmare. <coughs> Carrie. <coughs> a new film by Brian De Palma. Based on the chilling bestseller. Starring Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, and introducing John Travolta in his first motion picture role. If you have a taste for terror, you have a date with Carrie. Hello everyone and welcome to a special episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John and with me as always is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? Feeling particularly spooky, John. How about you? Same here. Uh, getting ready for Halloween any day now. So like I uh, said, this is a special episode and this is the Halloween special. Uh, and as usual in these uh, cases, we deviate from our uh, regular uh, from our scheduled programming to do something else. And in this episode, we are covering the 1976 film Carrie, directed by Brian De Palma and based on the novel by Stephen King. Uh, so why don't we jump straight into discussion? And uh, Jason, why don't you tell us something about this uh, this film? So as you stated, uh, Carrie is a 1976 horror film directed by Brian De Palma, and it was adapted uh, from Stephen King's debut novel of the same name which was first published in 1974. The film stars Sissy Spacek as the titular Carrie, a shy 16-year-old who is bullied at school and lives under the harsh, harsh parentage of her mentally unstable mother, a religious zealot, who visits her own sexual trauma on her daughter through extreme punishments. In order to atone for a brutal moment of bullying at the school, one of Carrie's schoolmates, Sue Snell, sets Carrie up on a date with her boyfriend. Uh, for prom night, only for events to spiral out of control as a notorious bully ruins the party. So the film features Piper Laurie as Carrie's mother, and she's a pretty famous award-winning actress at the time, and Sissy Spacek in one of her first uh, major roles as the titular Carrie. You've got uh, Amy Irving as Sue Snell, Betty Buckley as a sympathetic teacher named Miss Collins, and it also saw the rise of two stars, Nancy Island and John Travolta, in early film roles as they play the chief bullies, Chris Hargitson and Billy Nolan. 
The film was made on a budget of $1.8 million and was theatrically released on November 3rd, 1976. It became critically and commercially successful, grossing over $33.8 million and received two nominations at the 49th Academy Awards. Best Actress for SpaceX and Best Supporting Actress for Piper Laurie. And uh, yeah, it's pretty rare for horror films to get uh, such acknowledgements from big awards bodies. And uh, Carrie is regarded as one of the best adaptations of a Stephen King story. So John Travolta, did, didn't he already have uh, like a big movie by this time? Or was it was this before? What was the big movie that he did? Grease? What year was Grease? It's like Grease and Saturday Night Live are his big movies. Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, Saturday Night Fever, not the, not the show, Saturday Night Live. <laughs> so those are the two film roles that he's associated with most. And I was quite surprised to see him pop up in um, De Palma's early films, like uh, Blowout and um, Carrie. Yeah. So, okay, so what's, what's, what's your history with this film? When did you first watch it? What did you think of it? Have you read the book? Have you watched any of the other uh, movies in the franchise? Uh, what's, uh, why don't you tell us about that? So this is a second time viewing for me um, because this is considered one of those horror movie year texts uh, that everybody has to check out because it's like genre defining. Um, I watched it as a teenager and um, along with like Halloween and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Evil Dead and Night of the Living Dead. And um, I, it didn't leave much of an impression on me aside from the ending when I first watched it as a teenager. And uh, I think I wasn't really engaging with the film on its own terms or making an effort to understand the character on a deep level. Um, kind of like I was more influenced by the visceral thrills and spills and laughter of the other films I mentioned. And um, I guess like whenever I thought about Carrie before the second time viewing, my ultimate takeaway was it was sad but not horrifying. And then, you know, for this viewing for the podcast and with a lot more experience and empathy and allowing myself to get absorbed by the story, I was like, really, wow, this is a genuinely horrifying movie. It's absolutely scary. And not because of like the headline telekinetic powers um, and the sort of prom night that goes horribly wrong, but because of the cruelty um, that people uh, exhibit towards Carrie. It's just really unrelenting grim and Brian De Palma's direction the way he marshals all the visual and oral elements to put a viewer in the shoes of Carrie really powerful influential and um, I just found myself carried away by this film um, even though I knew how it end um, uh, I kept thinking like I, I just kept wishing that it would end some other way because I came to care about the main character so much yeah as for myself, I mean, I talked about this. It wasn't even, I think, maybe a year ago or something that line when I mentioned that I, I saw it for the first time. And I mentioned how taken I was by it and how impressed I was. And I couldn't stop thinking about the film for weeks after I saw it, uh, like a year ago. And then when I rewatched it now, I thought maybe that sort of like that impre impressiveness would have been diminished, but no, I, that was the same. I, I watched it in preparation for this podcast and I still couldn't stop thinking about it uh, several days now that it's been after, after rewatching it. And it's, I think it's that impressive. Like you said, it is a, it's a fantastic horror film. I would classify this as a very typical Gothic horror. Uh, and uh, it's just a fantastic film. And I, I think I've always been aware of Carrie. The reason why I voted it is because I've never been a, and I've mentioned this before. I've never been a huge fan of Brian De Palma 
I think he's always been kind of hit or miss. And the best, best films of Brian De Palma is when he imitates Hitchcock. And I think this is sort of a very classic example of De Palma, at least technically speaking, kind of imitating Hitchcock and trying to, to distill, to take Hitchcock's sort of like, you know, most innovative aspect of Hitchcock, you know, techniques and filmography and kind of put it into a, maybe a slightly different subject matter than what Hitchcock would have covered, although he did do Rebecca, which is a very similar film. And in fact, I read somewhere that, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Stephen King was inspired by Rebecca in, in When Writing Carrie. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's just fantastic. And I think we can talk about how, you know, just aside from the horror aspect, how expertly uh, De Palma kind of tells this story, how, how he utilizes sort of like the, you know, what's a relatively simple story, what's a relatively simple narrative to sort of like create the suspense that kind of kind of slowly builds up like ladder by ladder, like, you know, uh, step by step to, to like a sort of a crescendo that just kind of completely explodes at the end. Yeah, it's like even something as simple as shot selection, just expertly done so it conveys um, the story so smoothly. like. When Carrie's being bullied in the shower, um, you know, you've got that sort of shot of like the blood coming down the legs and like the phallic shower head, and like, okay, we're coming up to the age of menstruation, and there's going to be a sexual aspect to this. And then you've got a shot of the bullies and um, the whole plug it up, plug it up thing, and it's going to be like, okay, these are the primary antagonists. And then you've got the um, teleconnect, the shots of the teleconnect powers blowing up lights, uh, fuses, and uh, it's kind of like, there's your film. This is the direction it's going to go in. And the way he uses like split screen and intercuts between different characters to show who like the different machinations of the antagonists and um, Harry's so-called allies in this film just really helps ramp up uh, the, the tension because, you know, like you said, it's going to head to this big crescendo of the prom night, which everybody's talking about. And even the prom night itself, which is like kind of shot like it's got so much tension when the characters are looking at uh, looking for how it's going to go wrong. It reminded me of like uh, films where the president's going to be assassinated. <laughs> yeah, because like uh, slow motion and just track a tracking shot or point of view shot showing, uh, you know, like the the device that's going to cause all the chaos. Just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, until the very last. Well, well, until the, the climax of, not the last, but the climax of the film, uh, this is a, a, a story that is kind of shot like a fairy tale, right? And it, he even uses, you know, visual cues that this is a fairy tale. That's why I said it's a gothic horror film. There's just so many, like, shots and scenes, especially in that dance at the prom where they, he uses, like, soft lighting that reminds you of those, like, romantic comedies or romantic dramas of, like, the 20s and the 30s. Uh, of the silent era, which everything is just so like dreamy and otherworldly, and it's sort of almost like a, uh, almost an exaggerated sense. Yeah, there's a there's a haziness to some of the um, exterior shots around Harry's house. Yeah, that's a, a a typical technique of uh of silent cinema that was invented by silent cinema. And yeah, there's like you said, gothic horror. There's a mad woman in the attic, and um. You contrast that with like the harsh reality of the school scenes, like uh, again the shower scene where you've just got all these shots of all these faces like baying for blood as they're humiliating Carrie. It's just horrible, horrible tension built up through that. And uh, yeah, you've also got this dreamy romantic music as well, which uh, plays into sort of like building up to that 
final date with uh, Sue Snell's boyfriend, Tommy, where everything seems to be going right. And then Brian De Palma pulls the rug out from underneath everybody. Yeah, uh, I forget I forget who the composer is, but this is might as well have been scored by Bernard Herrmann, who is a, a frequent composer of Hitchcock, uh, of Hitchcock movies, because the style is just so, so similar to Bernard Herrmann's style. And I'm guessing... Uh, Brian De Palma could not use Herman because he was using Herman in his other film that came out the same year, Obsession, which is also another great film, which is essentially like a Hitchcock ripoff of uh, uh, Vertigo. Okay. Yeah, like uh, Obsession definitely sounds like a Hitchcock title. Yes, it is. It is, a, it is actually, funny enough, Obsession is a, shares, in terms of the plot, shares a lot of common elements with Old Boy. Oh, okay. Definitely yeah. want to track that. Then. I recommend watching it. It's It's watch Obsession and then watch Vertigo at the same time. And Hitchcock was so upset because he thought Obsession was the ripoff of Vertigo. I don't think it is, but I think it's certainly De Palma is using pretty much every trick that Hitchcock invented to make that movie. And he also uses, uses Bernard Herrmann as a composer. And I'm guessing that's why he didn't use him in this film because two films in the same year were probably too much for an aging Bernard Herrmann. It's, it's funny to think of them as being contemporaneous with each other because like Hitchcock from like the silent era and even though he kept going in well into the 60s and um 70s like it's uh brian de palma's like a world apart that's what it feels like to me well i mean they they overlapped a little bit but it's you know well it's you know like hitchcock made, made what like two movies in the 70s so it's it was towards the end of his career and none of them are noteworthy i think they are world apart because sort of like you know, the 60s was a very transitional period for cinema, which is sort of like the end of Hitchcock's, uh, Hitchcock's career, who made, you know, a couple of notable movies in the 60s, but they were still movies in the ve- very much in the old style. Uh, whereas, you know, the 70s was a completely change, was the sort of like the new age, the new generation of filmmakers with De Palma, Spielberg, uh, Scorsese. Uh, Scorsese. So it was... It was a world apart, even though it's the years separating them was not, was not, you know, was a short amount of time in terms of, you know, time passed. It was literally a new generation of filmmakers. Uh, yeah, a new type of acting technique as well with method acting becoming really popular, like the emergence of Jack Nicholson and Robert De Niro. And also influences from Italy as well, because like De Palma's always struck me as a director who's, well... <laughs> Like his films are akin to Giallo, I I would say. I don't, you know, I I'm not sure if you're uh, too familiar with Giallo movies. Not not particularly, no. But definitely in terms of like camera movement and framing, the way he just uh, uses uh, the camera so sinuously and um, sets everything up, just reminded me of so many Italian movie directors. Uh, yeah, he does something which I kind of feel like it's a it's been a it's lost art in modern filmmaker where he doesn't he doesn't rely on and this again this is arguably a Hitchcock thing although not exclusively a Hitchcock thing uh, where he does not rely on creating suspense suspense by hiding information he he shows the audience everything that's going to happen the suspense is in anticipating what the the particular event happening you know uh there's no there's no really you don't have to wait long to figure out that carrie's telekinetic but you find right away and you don't really have to figure out what's going to happen in the climactic scene you know exactly what's going to happen the suspense is created by anticipating and waiting for 
said event to happen. Yes. And I, I, I think I hate how many modern filmmakers think they, the best way to create suspense is by hiding information uh, for the audience and then surprising them at the climax or the end. I think that's just that just a terrible... Well, not... I mean, it has its place in storytelling, but I think it's just... It's so much better when you do... Uh, do let the audience know. Don't kind of... Don't treat the audience as, as a, sort of like a, a baby to be kind of fed information at only a certain amount of time. Uh, it's like when Hitchcock said, if you show a family, a family eating dinner uh, and then a bomb explodes suddenly and the family dies, that's shock. But if you show the family eating dinner and then you pan the, the, you tilt the camera down to show a bomb ticking underneath the table, now that's fear. And to to highlight the 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 difference between fear and shock, because the audience knowing the information is adds the suspense as essentially, especially if the filmmaker knows how to kind of milk that and and kind of allow the characters to sort of like like act to to, to like the story to move around that sort of like Chekhov's gun type of information. Yeah, and it helps that uh, De Palma's really got um, a rich visual sense such as Carrie's house where there's a lot of candles around there's a lot of religious iconography around and um and you can see a spartan living and Piper Laurie is absolutely terrifying as she storms about the place and um we often get uh you know, her bullying her daughter and point of view shots uh, low angle shots looking up at her she's a fierce woman and um whenever she's giving religious lessons absolutely terrifying so you know like something's gonna blow up and she's gonna be a major force so like you said because we know it there's that tension there and we're just waiting for something to happen likewise with the school we know that carrie's got an unhappy home life um the school is just as bleak um when you see all of those faces laughing at carrie it's just absolutely horrendous and so, like, upon the subsequent second viewing, we're, like, drinking in all of this detail and just seeing how bleak her life is, that there's no relief from what she's living through. It was really affecting. And um, far more terrifying than the telekinetic stuff, which, like, the other films, the sequels and the remakes um, focus on. Uh, we'll talk about those uh, in due time. But what did you think of, sort of, Carrie as a character and her mother as a character what do you think of, you know, like the religious uh, background and the, you know, so some of the more, you know, I want to say, ex- I don't want to say the word exaggerated, but maybe unrealistic stuff where, uh, you know, like Carrie not at all being aware of that something like a period exists, right? Uh, or her mother being so delusional that thinking that if she left, uh, if she lived uh, like a pious life to an extreme or if her daughter did so she would be spared the period or her being married without expecting, without being expected to have sex with her husband, which she reveals at the end. Right. Whereas like no, no religion that I know of forbids sex between married couple. Right. Um, wasn't it like, um, that she was actually raped by a husband? Yes, she was, but like, she thought that the right thing to do was to be married and not have sex at all, which is, I, I know of no religious text that says that, says that right like to consider it a scene like a lot of most religions may consider sex before marriage a scene but sex after marriage is fine right am i I i'm not an expert but that seems to be the case where she was such an extreme 
such an extreme religious fanatic where even like no sex at all was the only pious way to live. And I think in the in the book, uh, they I haven't read the book, uh, but for, I've read about the book in the in the, the novel. And it's suggested that she grew up in a cult after her father, um, Carrie's mother, father died at a young age. Uh, she kind of got trapped or got tricked into being in a cult that was an extreme. Whereas in the movie, there's not none of that. It's just extreme religious fan- fanaticism. Yeah, it's exaggerated, but I don't think it's impossible. We, like there are all sorts of religious communities in, around the world in America, and they practice all sorts of extreme cults. And uh, well, practices. <laughs> so I, I like. I think what we're seeing is like. Um, I just read it as she's manifesting her sort of um, sexual trauma and um, mixing it together with um, misreadings of religion, uh, which she could have got from a cult, or she could have made up herself because she's definitely mentally unstable. That, but she's been traumatized in some way, and she's inflicting it upon Carrie. And you do get people who are maybe like closeted they're just unaware of what's going on around them and so we're seeing like a mother one generation put their trauma through abuse onto another generation and that's how i read the characters yeah and i was actually gonna say uh that having lived in rural parts of the u.s for you know a decent number of years i have met people like carrie and carrie's mother not as extreme as as it is depicted in the movie but not surprisingly not that far off from what from what is depicted in the show uh so it is i think stephen king uh, and maybe brian de palma as well i'm not sure but definitely stephen king definitely tapped into something that he had you know first hand experience uh, in uh somehow you know being i think he's from maine right i'd i'd be surprised if this was a thing in maine but you know other parts of the us maybe the south maybe the midwest uh, where, you know, like, characters like Carrie, which are, like, extremely shielded uh, and isolated from, like, society, and people like Carrie's mother, who are religious fanatics to an unreasonable extent, are not uncommon. So you're, I think you're right, yes. I, yeah, Stephen King stated um, that he based the character of Carrie on two girls, two separate girls he knew at different points in high school or he was aware of. Like, one was from a very religiously devout family, and the other was from a very poor family, so she could only wear one set of clothes um, during the week. So, yeah, he's definitely had, it seems like he's definitely had experiences uh, yeah. amongst people like that. I still don't know that there would be anything as extreme as, you know, considering having a period, uh, a sin, uh, or, uh, or, or that it somehow would not happen if you lived enough, uh, if you did not have any sinful thoughts. I think, I think that's perhaps a little edge, but again, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the film. It is a, it is a, a you know, a fictional story after all. And it's perhaps what makes it interesting. Yeah. Like, um, she's going to a public high school, um, sex education at this place because they're like, um, they were like tampons in the actual show, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, she's 16. So yeah, unless she was exempted from classes, um, it's like, but again, you know, just for the world of the movie, and there are there are people who are like this, you know, it's it's acceptable. You just go along with it. Yeah, uh, there is. Um, uh, that's it's funny. The scene between the high school uh, principal and uh, what's uh, her name, uh, Miss Collins, right? Yes. Uh, and 
the conversation where the high school principal is extremely uncomfortable with talking about menstruation. <laughs> That's a pretty funny scene. It is. He's just wincing because the uh, blood is on uh, Miss Collins's. Yeah, he, he's wincing at the blood and, and just at the, the subject in general of menstruation. He can't it's, even it, say it. Yeah, that's like a generational thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if they teach sex ed in in the, in this one, but yes, like you said, they have. Uh, it's 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 those kind of details that yeah, perhaps perhaps there is like a, a minor plot hole if you really look into it, but it's 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 easy to suspend your disbelief for the sake of the story. Yeah, that's because like De Palma just creates this all-encompassing world of just like the mother trying to seclude herself and Carrie. And uh, Carrie coming into her own. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just really well realized world. Uh, yeah, and uh, and you did say about um, uh, the you know this movie was uh, nominated for Academy Award for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor, right? For uh, uh, Carrie's mother, and I thought that's the one thing that this movie got absolutely right is the casting. Obviously, the two those two characters are fantastic, are, are superb, but everybody in this film is just does an incredible job and it's it's you know Brian and this is kind of maybe the realism of the 70s but Brian Obama does kind of like despite these unrealistic elements that we just mentioned uh, like Obama does a fantastic job at just kind of depicting a very very grounded high school uh and yeah maybe you know like maybe Chris is perhaps too villainous of a of a character to perhaps slightly exaggerated but not not really outside the realm of possibility sociopathic psychopathic um she's a scary character but like upon the second viewing she's like there were parts where i felt sorry for her because clearly she's got some issues in her life because like she deals out violence and she also seems to accept violence as well as if it's some sort of norm so i was kind of like is there something in her background have have you read the novel i haven't read the novel no okay so i was wondering if there's more like more more expanded background for her because the novel does go into the background of some characters it is a relatively short novel from what i understand yeah but the, the um, i was wondering if there was more in the novel about her the remake um does introduce her father but there's no sense of like abuse or anything but it's kind of like the way she treats others and the way she allows herself to be treated like there's something going on there and she's much more complex than a simple villain or maybe I'm just reading too much. And I noted in my notes how how both Sue and uh, Chris, and this are almost showed, like you said, intercut between each other, kind of manipulate their boyfriends to do something. In the case of Sue, it's something arguably nice. In the case of Chris, it's something that is evil, right? But they both sort of like achieve achieve them by sort of manipulating their boyfriends Maybe in the case of Sue, manipulating is too strong a word, but it, it kind of, I do think it fits a little bit. Well, she's definitely manipulating Carrie, but um, yeah, it's kind of, like this is uh, a female-led film. This is taking us into an exaggerated world of uh, high school girls. Yeah. What do you think of both Kings and uh, and De Palma's, you know, treatment of female character? Do you think it's perhaps somewhat of a male, a male version, or do you think they do a good job of kind of depicting a female world? Um, I can't comment on Stephen King's novels. I haven't read too many that I can remember. Um, uh, in terms of De Palma's uh depiction, I felt like it was complex 
like all of the characters were complex. They had their good points and their bad points. And uh, I actually appreciated that. And I did uh, feel a sense of realism, even if like the bullying felt like really extreme at times uh, and uh, Chris's character, especially. Yeah, I think I think just, uh, you know, women again, <laughs> never been in a women's locker rooms. <laughs> I don't know. But the, the you know, the throwing tampons uh, and shouting, plug it up, plug it up doesn't sound like something that could happen. Although, again, I, you know, I mean, obviously f- women can bully each other just as much as men do. So, you know, I, I can't speak of it, but it seems to me that that's perhaps like a male interpretation of female bullying. Yeah. I mean, women, it's, it's a biological or sociological fact that women and men display aggression in different ways, right? That's, that, that is just what happens. Uh, or or uh, a confrontation in different ways, and that sounds more like a male, a male type of confrontation, sort of like uh, put into a female locker room, basically. Yeah, I the the way I tend to view how guys bully each other is like just punch each other and walk away. It's more physical. It's more directly aggressive. Whereas you know, uh, female again, these are. Statistical averages. It's not that okay. there are an exception, but they tend to be more verbal, more subtle, more, more passive. Okay. Again, these are like I said, statistical averages. Not like it, it's 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 a given. And you know, it's. I remember this from psychology class when we talk. When I took a psychology class in university, I remember there was you know like the teacher talked about you know like the sort of like the differences between how male men and women communicate. And some of these are biological, some of these are cultural, right? So it doesn't, it's not inherently, you know, imposed. But there, there are, especially in American culture, there are undeniable differences. And to me, that struck me as like a male approach to, to a conflict in, in that locker room scene as opposed to a female approach. Although, again, I, I could be wrong. Do you think for the sake of the subject matter, like um, coming into like the uh, menstruation and... Um, telekinetic powers that this scene um just had to be made to sort of bring it bring everything together i think so maybe perhaps and i do think that i like i am very happy that you know stephen king chose such a subject as you know it, it strongly implied and i think both in the novel and the film that it is the the sort of like the the menstruation sort of like the carries jump into puberty that uh that kind of like sort of like rises her telekinetic powers, right? Yeah. Uh, and I do, I am happy that they did sort of like connect it to such a, like a, a, a fundamental uh, female bodily function, such as menstruation, as opposed to shying away from it. Yes, perhaps they didn't get it not being a female myself. I don't know if they got 100% right all the details, right? Uh, but I think I am applauded as opposed to, you know, again, d- depicting female characters completely you know like absent of sexuality like a lot of you know like superhero movies do for example where sexuality is completely absent from any female character yeah like i want to you know if if you're going to make a movie about capital captain marvel and celebrate it as a feminist achievement i want to see captain marvel menstruate i mean i don't want to see it <laughs> but i'm saying show that in the film like that's if you want to make if you want to make a, a movie about female heroes, make it about female heroes, right? Don't make it about female male roles played by female actors. Show something specific to the female experience. And that's right. Yeah, and it, I'm 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 picking on menstruation just because we're talking about here. It doesn't have to be that. I mean, I'm sure 
women are not reduced to their menstrual cycle, of course, but I'm just saying make it something about the female experience. Right? And I'm so happy that, you know, Stephen King did that here where he, he focused on that. And it's not just the opening thing. It's, it's a theme throughout. Like, I think there is, it's no coincidence that, you know, it kind of like it, like the the climax happens with pig's blood being dropped on Carrie's head. Yeah, so blood is a motif, a visual motif that is used quite often throughout the From the film. opening to the closing? Yes. I was wondering why pig, if there's any significance to that, or it's just simply, it's, it's just gross, it's just dirty. Uh, I, I read uh, that in the novel, Carrie's referred to... Uh, by epithets of various animals, farm animals. So, but again, that's another thematic thing. Pro uh, um, did that survive into the film, or is it just the pig's blood? I don't think there, there, there's any reference to pig other than the pig's blood that they throw, that they go to, to kill first. So I don't think there's any reference. I think in the novel, like you said, they call Carrie a pig often, many times. Yeah. But I don't think that's in the movie. No. I, I don't recall it being uh, just the pig's blood. That's the only thing I recall. Yeah, but I mean, pigs are sort of like considered dirty animals, right? They like live in filth. Yeah. Uh, in, in, you know, in certain religions, they're considered, they, they're unfit to consume. So that's the thing. Yes. I'm not sure if that's, if that's a factor here, but, but it made me wonder why pig's blood or if it's just something gross to like fit the horror theme over the film or in the novel. I probably like the most extreme thing that they could think of to to take from the book to tie everything together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, in the ending of the film, towards so so let's talk about the climax a little bit. So because we talked about the you know the end, so, so the, the like we already mentioned like the way that it builds up to that sort of like dumping of the of the blood. It's just like you said. It's like you think they're gonna assassinate the president or something like that. And there's like sort of like that. Sort of quasi tragic moment where Sue is trying to help her, but Miss Collins uh, is preventing her because she, excuse me, she thinks they're going to prank her or she's part of the prank or something like that. Did Did you think that uh, Sue was part of the prank? Because even though De Palma telegraphs that, like in the shower scene, in the aftermath, he, there's a shot of Sue looking guilty. And there are other shots. Well, which where, prank uh, are you talking about? Um. So in this, uh, the prank at the very end with the pig's blood. Yeah. Like I throughout the film, I was due to the complexity of the characters. I was always like, even though I knew what was going to happen, I kept thinking to myself, "This could go either way." Like, do you really trust Sue? Do you <laughs> well, so yeah, did you? I no, it never, it never. I never doubted Sue's intention. After I think her guilt. Uh, in the beginning, I think it's 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 unambiguous and true. Yeah, it's, so I, it's it's telegraphed in that shot of her looking really guilty. Yeah, so I don't, I never got the impression that she was even remotely part of the prank. I think yeah. she was she was generally guilty, and I think her desire to have her boyfriend take care to the prom was just genuine. Um, in the book, uh, in the ending, like uh, there's quite a significant difference. So in the book, in the book, like. Carrie is not only telepathic, telekinetic, but also telepathic. Okay. So um, how come she didn't see what was going to happen? <laughs> so, so yeah, that's, I mean, again, you can, you can find a few holes, but somehow she doesn't, right? But um, 
they have she doesn't just destroy the gym she destroys like half the town or something uh who hasn't wanted to do that yeah she destroys half the town and and in the end she has a confrontation with sue and she reads her mind and finds out that she indeed did not have anything did not have anything to do with it so she spares her life in the novel from what i i read the, only the summary of it okay uh but yeah, but uh, sort of like in the ending, like I said, that's a, a tragic moment. But, uh, you know, Sue gets her life spared just because of that also, because the teacher kind of thinks she's going to prank Carrie, so she locks her out. And that's the only reason why Sue survives, in the movie at least. Yes. Um, yeah, so like I, in the book, she kind of, like, in. do you think in the, and this is clear in the, sort of, kind of implied in the movie and it's made clear in the book that nobody knows what Car- that is Carrie is responsible for killing everybody in the gym right because they don't know right they they don't necessarily make that connection it, it seems like it's just a fire that's how everybody interprets it yeah and and the whole thing about Carrie's in hell which would imply that everybody found out that it was, she was responsible that's in a dream sequence that only Sue the sole survivor um, with no, uh, you know, cooks up. So yeah, like nobody can make that connection between like the tragedy at the gym and Carrie's powers. Yeah. Um, in the no- in the novel, that's true as well. That's I think explicitly stated. But again, Carrie goes out into the town, destroys half the town, and then telepathically transmits a message to the entire town that I did this. It's me, Carrie, and okay. everybody knows by the end. And uh, the, the, of course, the novel is told sort of in fragments. It's sort of an epistolary novel where it's like fragments from newspapers and other books after the fact that this has happened. Yeah, it's like a, a, from a commission or a report that's being um, commissioned by someone. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. What did you think of Carrie sort of running back to her mother after sort of like the events at the gym? It's, it's that moment. Like, you would hope that she was strong enough to resist doing that, like, because the mother's going to be like, I told you so. <laughs> but yeah. it's kind of like all of her worst fears confirmed, and she's going back to, like, the one point of normalcy, even if it is, like, horrific, that she feels like she can count on, and she reverts back to being a weak little girl. After that's, trying that's the to... only part of the film that I didn't like. That I, both times that I've seen it, I didn't like. I, I don't buy that after all that, Carrie would still be that naive to just kind of run back right to her mom. I, I, you have to read it as this has been a very, very traumatic moment for Carrie. She's lost yeah. control of her powers and she's going back to that one place of normalcy. And even there, she's betrayed. And it just adds to the tragedy of her character. Yeah. I, it still doesn't quite sit right to me. And from what I read, the, the summary of the book this doesn't happen in the book she goes back to the house with the intention of killing her mom because she's just kind of essentially Carrie is having a nervous breakdown and she's had enough at that point so yeah if i if i if i read it correctly she goes back to kill her mom and then of course she doesn't know that her again i, I don't i'm not sure how telepathy works here maybe it's it's a limited form of telepathy uh but uh but, you know, ironically, her mom is also intent to kill her, so they sort of kill each other, right? Yeah. Uh, in the book. And I, I like that ending. There are a lot of parts of the book that I, I think the, the Palma made the right choices of leaving them out. But uh, like Sue Snell's pregnancy, uh, which is in the remake, but uh, yes. not in it. And again, I think that adds literally nothing to the story. But So I, I can understand 
uh, I can understand uh, De Palma leaving out, but I do like the uh, this ending better, where Carrie's just had enough, and it's not kind of like doesn't run back to her mom right away. I mean, I can sort of understand the the choice that De Palma makes, but I prefer the the book's ending in this scenario. I just like the film, just absolute tragedy from beginning to end. When the pig's blood, the pig's blood happened, falls on her. And, you know, she has that moment where she recalls all the, her mother's word, they're going to laugh at you. That kind of like very, like, characteristic voice of her mother's. And then she sees everybody laughing. Do you think they're really laughing or do you think it's just Carrie kind of like hallucinating that moment? Oh, no, she's hallucinating it because we get so many shots um, where you've got onlookers just gobsmacked at what's happening. Some people looking horrified, like the teenagers who are being friendly to Carrie as uh, she was entering the party. And yeah. um, then you get that kaleidoscopic effect where yeah. she's seeing all of these faces. That's telling the audience, like, this is from Carrie's point of view. Like, she snapped. And Yeah. And it's hard, it's hard to believe that Miss Collins, for example, would, would, uh, would be laughing there. And she's seen definitely laughing in, from Carrie's point of view. Yeah, this is Carrie submitting to her rage. Just like, I want to get even. And um, she loses control. And yet, this is part of why you feel sympathetic. Well, this is part of why you know, I felt sympathetic for Carrie. It's kind of like I could understand because of the direction. Okay, this is how she feels. I'm firmly in her point of view. And um, even though she massacres a gym full of people, uh, there's there's a reason for it. There's a build up to it. Yeah. And the, oh, it's a fun fact. Um, the actress who plays Miss Collins, she's like two years or three years like older than the girls, than Carrie and uh, Nancy Allen, uh, uh, then you know Sissy Spacek and Nancy Allen and all the other actresses. Like most actresses were like between like twenty six and twenty eight, and yes, like she yeah. was like thirty or something. <laughs> so it's kind of funny how she plays like a much older character, uh, and she kind of looks looks like it. I think Sissy Spacek was a fantastic casting. She just looks like a, almost like a prepubescent girl. She's got a similar look to the actor Angela Pleasance. Uh, Pleasance. I'm not sure if you. I'm not. Seen that any doesn't ring a bell right now. Just this ethereal beauty to her, where just like a widening of the eyes makes her slightly. Um, it's strange looking. You know, just this intensity to her eyes. And uh, to compliment, like uh, a simple beauty, an etherealness to her. Yeah, well, yeah. I in in the novel, from what I read, the summary of it, she's far much less attractive in this in the beginning, uh, and especially her mother is depicted as an extremely like overweight and unattractive woman, as opposed to the film, which is not at all that. Uh, and that was sort of like perhaps maybe maybe like a less. Uh, nuance just depiction in the novel where she's kind of like she again the, the reason why she kind of you know like jumps into the, is sort of like implied that's the reason why she kind of like dives into religion yes and why she takes such an like anti-sexual stance is because of her own kind of like it's less basically it's in the book it's implied that it's less trauma and more you know like self-pity i don't know if that's the right the right term but something like that so whatever it is is using religion as a crutch to get through yeah whereas in the novel and the film is more trauma even though it's not explicitly stated the remake um has the mother actually self-harming 
Well, she it, in the in the film too. It's just not shown as much, but you did see a little bit. Uh, she scratches her cheek and she kind of slaps her face, and like you know, there is there is an implied sense that this is not the first time that's happening. It's like self flagellation. Yeah, yeah, and then that's in the novel as well. Yeah. So just before we jump into all the, the remake and the sequels, the, the let let's start just talk a lot about like the sort of like the technique of that climaxing because I just I think it's a masterpiece. It's like I don't know what possessed the Palma to just do it that way, where you know the color changes at all and almost like it's almost like a different actor playing Sissy Spacek with like her hair like all of a sudden like straight and like kind of like hanging with the weight of the blood on her hair and then all the the cross the the like split screens and like just her like looking and and uh you know like like how he depicts telepathy uh, it just cuts between between her eyes just like widening and then something happening it's just such a such an inspired moment of filmmaking well, it's just clear and concise communication of information as to what is happening and at the center of it you've got sissy spacek giving a fantastic performance her whole body is rigid and um her hair is completely straight she's doused in blood and she presents this really really fierce and scary image like when she leaves the gym and it's on fire and her arms are just splayed out to the sides and it's kind of, you know, um like she's walking very slowly it's bone chilling absolutely yeah. bone chilling and like the red uh, all the red from the blood and from the lighting and the prom again it's like a visual motif um, going back to the theme. Yeah, the cinematography is just something else in that scene. And it's, you know, it's amazing how this was all done for $1.8 million. Yeah. Well, yeah, just to go back to uh, a really good film like The Eel, where um, the main character sees his wife having an affair and the whole screen just goes red. It's yeah. a similar thing here. Yeah, similar motif. Yeah. I mean, red is obviously like has that effect, right? Yeah. And it's like you said, it's just used so brilliantly here. Like this, like visual uh, confidence is something like familiar with with uh, Giallo films, and which is why I made that reference earlier. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, not being familiar, but it's also like very clear reference to Hitchcock, especially every time she uses her telepathy, to like to like kinesis. Uh, there's like that uh, sound, that like that high pitched sound, which is directly from Psycho, right? Okay. And so yeah. that's in Psycho. That's how it uses. Like when she dies, the the famous knife in the shower. Scene. Ah, yes, yes. That's it's, the it's exactly the same sound. I think he's acknowledged that it's exactly the same side. So sound. Yeah. Definitely the way that the camera pans around, like the bucket of blood, uh trap. That struck me as Hitchcock game as well, because he would like to draw out like like uh, something like that. Uh all right. So did you watch, so I'm, I'm assuming you watched the remake. Did you watch the sequel? I watched the sequel, yes. Um, I, yeah, a friend in work told me about it, and I looked it up. It's on Amazon Prime. Totally yes, free to The watch. Rage, Carrie 2. Carrie 2, absolutely. Uh, and um, I was not a fan of the sort of MTV visual aesthetic. Um, you know, if you've ever watched, for anybody who hasn't watched it, if you've like uh, Freaky Links or um, Muck G movies from the early 2000s. That's essentially it. And there's a lot of bad CG. But what I appreciated about it was it tried to do something different, which is to relocate the source of antagonism from uh, fellow girls to sort of rape culture in 
high, American high schools, and um, uh, you can extend that to college campuses as well. Um, and um, sort of the hostility um, from patriarchy as well. And um, I thought that was a really interesting um, story choice that made it worth watching. Yeah, so I would agree with that. But here's the controversial part. I really enjoyed the sequel, or I enjoyed it more than I thought. I thought this would be a terrible movie. Uh, yeah. I watched the remake first, and spoiler alert, I thought the remake was unwatchable, basically. I hated it so much. Uh, and I thought I would get something similar with the sequel. And I, I enjoyed it. I thought they'd had a go. I thought, so the, the, the weakest part of the sequel was the script. And I don't think it was a weak script. I think, I think it was a decent script, partially for the reasons that you mentioned, which I, I 100% agree. But I think it was a script that had very specific flaws. And the, the script that I think perhaps, especially in its climax, tried to replicate the original. I think had it not been for that, I think this could have been a great sequel, a great film. Yeah. Because I think, I, I, I don't fully agree with your, I think the, yes, it is, it is, I agree that they do try to go with sort of like an MTV type of aesthetic and cinematography, but I like that because I think it fit with the subject matter. It's, it's flashy, it's teenagers. It's it's a it's a it's a fast and loose culture of of uh you know of uh, uh of teenagers in in the 90s which is uh, the culture that inspired MTV so uh, or that MTV tried to appeal to so I, I don't have a problem with that I thought it was a very clever use of that aesthetic and I thought the yeah. acting was the characters were the casting was just spot on like the first movie. I thought the main character did a great job. Not every character was as great, but I think the few central characters, I I I thought they I they especially the the Rachel what's her name I she, she did a fantastic job uh, as as being sort of like succeeding Sissy Spacek in essentially the same role. Well, she she made the role her own because it's like a completely different. From like a shy, vulnerable girl to someone who's ostracized but has a bit more of a rebellious attitude to her. Yes, you know the depiction of a foster of what the foster system is like. Her, it's I thought it was again having read and and heard about the foster system in the U.S. felt very accurate to what what her experience was like with her mother locked in a mental institution. Um, yeah, and so foster parents are saying like we're getting three hundred dollars a month. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, it doesn't belabor that point. It's just there. It's like a, it's almost like a throwaway line, but I think it sticks. So I did, I think yeah, there are, it, go ahead. There's also like a class element to it as well, because like the most heinous kids are the richest kids in the school. Yeah, yeah. And there's like this kind of like game with rape culture, which is based on a real thing. It was based on a real event, a real, what do you call it? Like a real thing that happened in the 80s, I believe, in the United States. And initially, yeah. it was meant to be a film about just that, and then the someone, either the director or the producer, wanted to kind of also link it with the Carrie uh, franchise. So absolutely, I thought the film has a lot of positive. Like that's why I said I was surprised at how much I actually enjoyed this. And I think again, some of the dialogue was really silly, and like I think there were times where it felt it tried too hard to imitate the original carry is supposed to embracing its differences, which I think it was where the film was at its best. Uh, I thought the acting was great. I the style. I enjoyed it. Uh, I thought even being essentially a carbon copy of the, the climax being a carbon copy of the first film in terms of, you know, technical direction, I thought the director did a pretty good job at 
depicting like the the final mayhem, so to speak. Was well done. It was a little bit sad that Sue Snell dies. Uh, I thought she did a good job at reprising her role from the first film. Yes, it, it, it kind of a throwaway death. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought you know if they were to continue the franchise further, she could be like a linking character. Yes, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. Yeah, exactly. Who's who's the linking character in the Halloween franchise? Uh, I can't remember. Is uh, it the Doctor? Uh, Sydney. Uh, uh, Donald Pleasance's character. Um, yeah. Dr. Loomis, isn't it? Yeah. So I thought she could have been, she could have played that role, uh, that role if they ever decided to. I, well, obviously this film didn't do that well in the box office, I don't think so. Maybe maybe it's all a moot point. But, you know, and I thought she does a pretty good job and I think they do a pretty good job at kind of linking. Uh, they, they went a little bit overboard with the flashbacks to the original Carrie, but, you know, it's not a big deal. Uh, I think the chemistry between Rachel and the boy that she dates, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jason or something? Uh, is that the actor's name? I think that's the actor's name. Yeah, but what's uh, the character's name? Johnson. Uh, whatever. They had great chemistry together. Again, I thought it, it was a movie that, that was much, much better than it had any right to be. It's very maligned by people. and I, you know, It's actually quite good in different elements. And again, really appreciate they did something totally different. Unlike the remake, which is almost beat for beat like oh, exactly the De Palma film it takes or oh, it adds some elements from the books which don't really bring anything to the movie and it makes the mistake of like the gratuitous violence um which undermines kind of undermines Carrie as a sympathetic character I and um yeah I just felt like the sequel was much better like you said much better than it had any right to be yeah, and uh, talking about the remake now, I thought he was incredibly miscast. So what's the uh, name of the main actress? Chloe something. Chloe Grace Moretz. Yeah. I, I don't know what you thought, but I thought she was just a terrible, terrible choice for Carrie. Just didn't do it for me. And that, that kind of soured me from almost minute one. Yeah, within the opening minutes, she's playing it too timid. It's kind of overacting. And she's constantly saying the word mama throughout it. And... um. Yeah, it doesn't if you don't have a uh, like a, a legitimate southern accent, it doesn't sound as as right. Yeah, it's kind of like she has this. Uh, she has like a, a few particular um, physical ticks that she relies on, whereas Sissy Spacek feels far more naturalistic. Yeah. Who directed the remake? I don't think is uh, anybody known. I don't think so. I like. I, I have to look it up. I probably nobody known, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, it's just just anybody, and it felt like so. Uh, Kimberly Pierce. Yeah, she did. Uh, she's known for uh, Boys Don't Cry, right? Yeah, Boys Don't Cry, Stop Loss, Carrie, and that's it. Uh, but yeah, it was just just again the the ending again. It takes a few more elements on the book, like for example, Carrie goes outside of the prom building and destroy some of the town i'm not sure and then they there's also that confrontation with two snail which is again also happens in the book but again they they really add nothing to the movie uh like or sue snail's pregnancy it it's just completely superfluous to the to anything that makes that needs to be in the movie yeah it just doesn't match the tragedy of the first film yeah like i said i i would watch the sec the sequel 10 times over like a minute of uh, 
of the of the remake. Yeah, because because it's trying to do something different, and just really appreciate that. All right. So, what else can we say about this franchise? I think it still has legs. Like every gener- like the remake and the sequel do a good job of updating the setting by including like social media and tech. And you can imagine each generation would want to see like their own version of a carry because like bullying and um, like all of these themes are un- <laughs> unfortunately timeless. And um, I think like Stephen King's original vision, judging by um, our conversation, hasn't been fully realized. So maybe that's an avenue. Yeah, this is, I mean, I don't, I don't, I think, well, you already said that it's one of the best adaptations of a Stephen King uh, uh, of a Stephen King novel and I, I do think that's because it, it probably has I don't think there's like The Shining for example or like It where there was any like part of the novel that didn't quite get a fair due in the adaptation I think I think De Palma captured the spirit of the of the novel pretty well and anything that he kind of left out was minor and inconsequential yeah this is such a focused film it's clear and concise roots you in the point of view of the characters gives you a complex set of characters who you're constantly thinking about uh questioning their motivations and um like the visual designs and the sound designs just very rich atmospheric really suck you into the story the world of these characters and it becomes a much more powerful film so whereas like teenage me who maybe not too cineliterate, maybe not too sympathetic, kind of didn't appreciate it. Adult me, you know, really enjoyed this movie. I can see why it's rated as one of the best horror films ever made. And um, yeah, as far as Stephen King adaptations go, you've got like The Dead Zone and this at the top of the pile. Do you think there's any, uh, or can you think of any like movies, any other movies or media that Carrie has like directly inspired? Either either the, the movie carry or the franchise carry. Like telekinesis has always been kind of like, you know, I think a lot of movies with telekinesis have grown like look to carry to some extent, although not necessarily because Stephen King did not invent that trope, right? It's been a thing for like a long time before him. Yeah, telekinesis at the time of menstruation. Like at like as far as like a story trope, like how common was that before? Maybe not. After? Maybe that particular like combination of it, probably probably not. Like, uh, we're familiar with it now, after, like, Carrie. Was it, like, how how well-known was it? Yeah, before? but what other movies use that? Or what other media uses that? I, like, I'm sure there have been, like, um, particularly in anime as well, that's quite common. Like, I can think of Akira, but I don't know that that's necessarily, like, a Carrie. I mean, it's sort of like a horror, has horror elements and has telekinesis and... Te- you know, mind powers, but I don't know that I, I, that would carry is a particular inspiration of that. Although I maybe I don't know. I yeah, I was thinking more just in general terms, like entering teenagehood and being able to access some power, like the pilots of the robots in Evangelion. It's been like two decades since I watched this, but isn't that like a factor of like they're able to pilot those giant robots because they're teens? Maybe yeah, I don't remember, but it could be yeah. But it's kind of like that idea that at that at adolescence. Like, it's a particular moment that allows characters to access particular parts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, like, I, I recognize that as a trope, but I can't think of any specific examples right now. 
Yeah, like I was like after watching Carrie, I was like, how common was this trope before? And it must have been like you know, it's like witches. Any witches out there who are listening to this? <laughs> yeah. Anybody so, with an interest in the Spanish Inquisition, let us know. <laughs> would you call this more a fantasy film or a science fiction film? I'd say it's like a fairy tale. Yeah, <laughs> like a fairy tale gone I, really bad. Yeah, so I, I like telekinesis is, tends to be in like more in the realm of science fiction, but I don't think in in this particular instance it's really follows the typical tropes of science fiction. So, what tropes in science fiction uh, would that be then? It's- well, that's that's the difference. You know, defining these genres is uh, is hard, but generally, like it is science fiction when there is like a even explicit or implied scientific or technological explanation for anything that happens. And I don't think we have that here. Yeah. But then again, just because it's not stated doesn't... So I think it's, it's again, like all these tend to be very hard to define, but I don't think this is... Uh, it doesn't really have anything else that may suggest that uh, Stephen King was uh, inspired particularly by a science fiction, although he has written science fiction, so who knows? I think when he wrote science fiction stuff, he used the pseudonym Richard Bachman, Bachman or something like that. I'm trying to think of any science fiction novels. If they used a pseudonym, then that would explain why I can't think of any. Uh, running the Running Man. He wrote the Running Man. Yeah, under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. Oh, my mind is blown. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go on a Wikipedia deep dive now. And uh, I think he wasn't like for a while. He wasn't outed. I don't know. Like, uh, uh, yes. Yeah, so, so the Running Man. Is uh, he wrote it under Richard Bachman? It was, of course, the the famous movie by uh, what's his name? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. Ah, but Stephen King did write a short story set in a dystopian America run by fascists, where people are encouraged to enter a competition where they just run and run and run. Oh, so so he wrote that before The Running Man. I'm not sure if he wrote it before The Running Man, but it just it rang a bell. Anyway, it doesn't doesn't matter, but. Uh... But yeah, I th- I th- I, that's another movie that I think it's a great movie that is perhaps somewhat unfairly, unfairly kind of brought down by by a lot of critics. That's a fantastic movie. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's like Arnold's best or anything like that, but I think it's a pretty good movie. I think it's an interesting movie. It's a great action movie. Just like you could put it on, grab a popcorn, bucket, and some beers, and just enjoy it. Uh, all right, so okay, so what what else can we say about Carrie, Stephen King, Brian De Palma, Sissy uh, Spacek, or anything else regarding this uh, this movie? Yeah, just absolutely fantastic movie, and this second rewatch just uh, helps solidify. Like, ha- I think Brian De Palma is becoming one of my new favorite directors, even though his later career is a uh, a bit all over the place. I like Snake Eyes a lot, but um, watching his early films just really impressed me. So you did mention something just a, a few minutes ago where you said, like, every generation needs a carry. But I don't wonder, we both said that this is a gothic horror movie. It kind of, it does have that fairy tale aspect. Do you think that diminish is diminished a little bit by kind of setting it in a modern setting? Like, for example, in the remake, I mean, this is by far not the weakest point of the remake that was mentioned. But, you know, whenever, like, the characters would pull out, pull out their, uh, their smartphones, right? To like film Carrie, that seemed to me, seemed to me, just didn't belong in Carrie. I feel like the the sort of like the backwards, well, the seventies being in the seventies, especially Carrie's mother who lived even like seemed to 
be believe in some even older time. To me, that seemed to be like very apropos of the story, whereas in being said in the modern world, I don't know. I'm not convinced that this is right, but something tells me that maybe something being said in a modern era wouldn't work as well. Different atmosphere, so maybe we could go down the sci-fi route. So I mean, being said in the future? Yeah, possibly. I mean, like the, it depends upon the um, quality of the filmmakers, but um, I think it's safe to say that you cannot replicate the original carry got to try something new yeah so i think this is a good place to end our discussion of uh, carry the movie and carry the franchise uh and that said we can jump into our news segment of the episode so jason any interesting news so yeah um we've got uh like evil does not exist by Ryusuke hamaguchi won best film at the london film festival okay and we've got Blu-ray releases, yeah, Yakuza Graveyard, 1976 version, and From Beijing with Love, um, Stephen Chow's movie. So Yakuza Graveyard's coming from Radiance Films. Do you have a date Yeah, the Kinji Fukasaku Yakuza film, which is uh, all of his Yakuza films, in my opinion, are, are worth watching. Not all of them are great or equally great, but they are all, all worth watching, in my opinion. Uh, do we have a release date for Yakuza Graveyard? I think, I think today, actually. Okay. As of time recording. So uh, anybody listening to this, uh, jump into some Kinji Fukusaku with Yakuza Graveyard. Uh, Didn't Takashi Miike remake that? I think he did. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, we've also got Stephen Chow's from Beijing with Love from Eureka. Yeah. uh, This was something that was announced a while ago, and maybe we already mentioned it in Heroic Purgatory, but it was released very recently and is available for sale. Yeah. And as the title suggests, it's a spoof on the James Bond uh, formula. Yeah. And uh, Jackie Chan has a new movie called Ride On, um, which is released by Wellgo USA. Yeah, it doesn't. I don't think it's going to get a theatrical release. Is that the one that involves a horse? Yeah, yeah. And I, I watched the trailer, and I'm not going to lie, the trailer looked maybe somewhat more promising than anything that he's else that he's done recently. Okay. There was sort of like some a few classic comedy moments, but again, trailers can be very misleading. So who knows? But. It might be something, to, and especially if well go USA. I don't think it's going to be a theatrical. It's just going to be a whole media release, but uh might be worth checking out. Okay. Maybe on a future um, series of Heroic Purgatory dedicated to modes of travel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, so nothing else on the news. Then we can jump into the final segment of the episode, which is cultural consumption. So, Jason, why don't you tell us what you've been doing since last time we, we spoke? So yeah, it's uh, Halloween, and with the approach of Halloween, I'm watching lots of horror movies. Um, I watched four entries of the Phantasm series by Don Coscarelli. Uh, Phantasm first was fantastic, dreamlike, um, scary, scary antagonists. Um, lots of themes about loss and death, and uh, very, very beautifully shot. And then as the series goes on, it becomes more comedic, like Return of the Living Dead uh comedic and um reuses the same ideas and um same action scenes essentially and the same actors and props come back but still enjoyable for the first four films i've got to uh watch door one and door two by banmei takahashi these were like previously uh lost uh well good versions of these films were previously lost um 
uh, one's a home invasion thriller about a salesman that uh, essentially uh, barges into the life of a, a woman in an apartment, and the other's about uh, a, a college student who moonlights as an um, escort and gets involved in S&M shenanigans, and uh, Third Windows Films is, is uh, going to release them at the end of the month, October 30th, I believe, and uh, yeah, looking forward to digging into those two films. Uh, we've got great transfer for the Blu-rays and um, some really great extras as well. I really enjoyed Third Windows Films' previous release, um, The Guard from Underground by Kyoshi Kurosawa, which looked fantastic. Massive upgrade on DVDs have been previously released. And the extras on that DVD package were also fantastic. Tomes commentary just taught me so much about the Japanese film industry at the time. So I'm looking forward to the Door 1 and Door 2 release. Uh, and that's been my cultural consumption. Haven't had time for video games, just films. How about you? All right. Uh, so I actually started reading the Carrie novel uh, after uh, after rewatching the films. Uh, it's I, I've been interested in the franchise so much that I decided might as well. I mean, it's a short novel; uh, should get uh, done with it quickly. So, uh, so I, I I figured it was uh, it was worth to try to start reading it. Uh, I'm continuing to play Trails from Zero, so that's nothing new from this week, from last time. And I watched a few movies. Uh, I watched the, the science fiction film Mr. Nobody, starring Jared Leto. And I don't know if it, you know, this is a movie that I thought I would enjoy a lot, but I found it too slow and too, uh, just too meandering in terms of its, like, its storyline. It kind of shifts between two different alternative Paths that the life of this one person takes played by Jared Leto, uh, uh, Leto actually. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't in the right mood uh, that uh, to watch it because it did. It, I found it relatively boring. Um, yeah, I watched a few horror films. I watched uh, two new horror films on Amazon Prime. Uh, one was uh, is a totally killer. Uh, I don't know if you've seen. It's a it's a it's a cheesy horror film meant um, sort of like inspired by. Uh, the action slasher movies of the 70s and 80s. Okay. Uh, and it's about a teenager who goes back in time to the 80s, actually. Again, nothing nothing extraordinary, but a, a funny, it's a sort of a comedy horror, a funny slasher-inspired film. Uh, yeah. Uh, if, you, if you have a, a couple of hours to kill. And then I watched the new film starring Nicolas Cage called Rain, Reinfield, Rain, Renfield. Oh, the vampire one. Yeah. And I got to say, it's one of the... Uh, again, nothing, nothing extraordinary, but I enjoyed also this one a lot. It's one of the better takes on the Dracula story. Yes, uh, it's essentially it's, it's uh, Nicolas Cage plays Dracula, and it's everything that you expect of Nicolas Cage in a role like this, campy as hell. Uh, but it focuses on his sort of like assistant or his familiar, who's who's a British guy called Renfield. Yes, it's very funny, uh, very interesting. The action, I thought it was very well done, very violent and graphic, almost gratuitously slow, but I feel like it. It goes well with the campiness of the story. And this is on Amazon Prime? Uh, yes, yes. At least in the US. I don't know about UK. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll scope it out and uh, next episode, uh, maybe I'll, I'll watch it. Yeah, I, it's, it's a, again, a nice campy horror movie. A bit violent, but actually I don't even know if it's a horror movie. It's, it has horror elements, but it's not particularly scary. It's more like an action movie with horror yeah. elements. Um, and then I watched the new HBO documentary, The Insurrectionist Next Door, which is about uh, uh, interviewing a few of the the people that were there during the attempted insurrection in January 6th. 
Yes. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting because you sort of like get into the ideas of some of these people and really what they're thinking, what, uh, you know, sort of like uh, trying to understand sort of like the mentality of some of these people. And it's I, it's very nuanced and I, I kind of always enjoy that part. Um, I, I get the impression it's too much internet. Uh, it's, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised sort of t t on the background of these people, sort of what led them there. It's, it's like I said, it's very, very nuanced. It's worth a watch. Uh, if you're interested in that sort of subject, and it's a relatively short documentary, it's like not even a 90 minutes, I think. Okay, so the insurrection next door, definitely. Insurrectionist next door. The insurrectionist next door. Yeah, I. Uh, that's it for my cultural consumption. Cool. Okay, so I think that brings us to the end of the episode. So, any closing thoughts, Jason? Uh, yeah. Uh, I can see why Carrie's highly regarded after um rewatching the film, and like you, it's uh. After rewatching it, I kept thinking about it, the motivations of the characters and so forth. And if, like, on subsequent rewatches, I still have this weird feeling of, like, hoping that something can change <laughs> because I feel so sympathetic to everybody. So I'm glad that we covered it. And um, yeah, uh, thanks for um, suggesting this episode. Uh, absolutely. All right. So that's it for our episode on Carrie, uh, the Heroic Purgatory episode on Carrie. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, concerns, please let us know at heroic-purgatory.com or at, on Twitter at heroicpurgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, we'll see you next time.